Welcome to the World of Wisdom podcast. And my name is Amit Paul. Today, we'll, this is a conversation that I'm really excited about having um, because I met this person in an online room roughly a year back or like maybe a little bit more. And I was part of, a, of the Spirit of Humanity Forum. And there was a workshop there that was very practical and very sort of interesting and, and eye-opening around neuroscience. And the guest today, Tanya Singer, she was one of the hosts for that. And then uh, last fall, we had the opportunity to speak about business and speak about sort of the system and systems change and systems transformation in the Emerge conference as well. And that was really a privilege to get to know you a little bit more and get to work with you and interact with your ideas and thinking. And I think you're just this wonderful, fantastic person that's acting in the cross-section of research and actual societal change. And I, I could really see your passion or felt a passion, which is kindred to my own, to, to how can we work with societal change and how can we do that by supported by science and neuroscience in particular, I guess. So welcome to the podcast, Tanya Singer. Thank you for inviting me. I, I'm really thrilled to be again <laughs> with you in a virtual room, right? But this time just uh, audio. And yeah, just to continue our conversation, which has started in Berlin, is really promising, right? I loved our workshop we did outside, a bit cold, yeah. but <laughs> we had, I think, great moments. Indeed. And I, I will, um, I usually start uh, to, to uh, not color it too much, but I would love to uh, just ask you this very, very simple question of uh, who are you? Who am I? That's <laughs> that's a question we actually pose to our participants in certain practices, you know, contemplative mental practice. Who am I? And you do that from morning to evening. So it's actually a spiritual practice to ask this question. And I would think you cannot really find an answer, just you, the, the real answer you find it through experience, no, not through verbal language. But I mean, some superficial answer would be this kind of more like societal answer, right? Would be like, I'm a psychologist, social neuroscientist. Uh, I'm a person who also worked in arts for many years. And I would say I'm a bridge maker. I was always passionate to create bridges between fields which usually do not talk. Uh, so I, throughout my life, without have, having planned that, I... I hopped between different planets and different fields, started as psychologist, and then I even ended up in an economy department. And then I worked a long time in the context of the Mind and Life Institute with Dalai Lama and a lot of his contemplative scholars to bridge somehow you know, contemplative Eastern spirituality with hardcore natural science. I grew up in a household with a natural scientist father, quite famous one. So I, I was brought up with scientific reductionism. Uh, but, you know, throughout my life, I discovered many more <laughs> ways of looking at the world. And yeah, so I guess I, I was always curious to bring also people together with different perspectives and different interests and to bridge these gaps. Thank you. Yeah, because you, I, I mean, I will, I will bring on, bring in some of the things that I read on your bio on the webpage as well, just because it's just it's so fantastic to see the breadth of um, approaches that you are taking. So you're, you're uh, head of the neuroscience lab with the Max Planck Society in Berlin. 
um, you were working and you've been working, you are working a lot with this resource project, which is a longitudinal study of 300 participants around contemplative practice and um, pro-social behavior. And yeah, I mean, I'd love to touch upon that as well. Mm-hmm. And then you have this concept of caring economics. Mm-hmm. And and then you've been doing some some work recently also with the with the pandemic and the how that influences people and, and loneliness and mental health. And so I mean it's really yeah I, I love that that you are phrasing yourself as a bridge maker and and I you know I long for more of more of you <laughs> in the world. Yeah, of course I was always doing that through a scientific lens, right? Like in my lab and not as a social activist or, uh, but now I'm, I'm advising a lot of startups uh, because, you know, a lot of startups start picking up on this huge mental health problem we are facing, um, not only because of the pandemic, but also before already, you know, like loneliness aco- across the bank and um, stress-related diseases, depression in, in the younger people uh, raising, rising. And so there is a, a lot of need to do something now. And so mm. there's a lot of mental health apps and mental health initiatives rising now from everywhere. And so um, I'm asked a lot to advise these companies. So I'm, I'm learning this, you know, like social business and startup world. Uh, and I think it's really important that, you know, we scientists bring our knowledge into that so that our knowledge becomes translational and really starts helping um, society and the systems we are living in. And from your perspective, from, from, from the knowledge that you've gathered and the projects that you're involved with, um, what is the current state of the world? I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you see that sort of inner, inner, outer, like how do you see the world at the moment? I mean, <laughs> you know, obviously uh, the pandemics has been quite tough, you know, on, on the mental health. And that's the lens I have. I'm not looking so much at the physical health, like who is dying from COVID or not, but more like, you know, how do people cope with the situation of losing their jobs, of the uncertainty of, you know, um, lockdowns in and out, never knowing when the next will come. Um, and, you know, at, at least uh, we, you know, like in 2020, I started very spontaneously to do a, a COVID study where we assessed only in Berliners because I'm sitting in Berlin. Uh, we just, you know, wrote 60,000 letters to some random Berliners over the city register. And we asked them, do you want to take part in a psychological study asking how you feel, mental health, resilience, social cohesion, like, you know, trust, belonging in institution, into neighborhood, into world. And uh, we just start. And so we followed them for a whole year because it never stopped. No, we went from one lockdown to the other. So we continued the study <laughs> much longer than we had actually planned. It was all very spontaneous. And what we see is whenever a lockdown hit, the, on average, the Berliners really become more anxious, more stressed, more depressed, more lonely. And especially in the second lockdown, there is like a fatigue effect, right? With every month, because it was like six, seven months, you know, man- mental health declines um, stepwise down and also like emotions get more negative. And so it actually affects the population really hard. And what I also saw in the data and is confirmed also by data from UK and America, they're all popping up now 
because it's all very fresh studies, right? So we are just starting to understand what this you know, pandemic did to our <laughs> to our mind and our soul and our mental health, and it's affecting women uh, most, but also the youngest generation. So we had like 18 years old to 65 in our sample. And the youngest group, the 18s to 25-year-old, are the most depressed, anxious, lonely, not, not the 60-plus, which have a higher risk to get ill, right? And, and you know, uh, this is surprising to a lot of people. To me, it wasn't because I had already done, because of my research, a, a lot of research beforehand about loneliness. Uh, and I had seen a lot of meta-analysis from America um, showing that for the first time in loneliness history or like research of loneliness, the youngest feel the most disconnected and lonely. Uh, you know, in 18 to 25 years is the period where you are the most social and you're like marrying and falling in love and partying. So that uh, is really bad. This is really, really bad news because also from a brain scientist perspective, uh, you know, our brains still plastic in between 18 and 25. They are still wiring and pruning. We call that pruning, like, you know, like getting uh, formed. And so you can imagine and stress and cortisol and all that is directly affecting our brain structure and development, especially when it's still so malleable. So, so you know, seeing these data and seeing that, being not just in our study, but in many other studies, one of the major findings which pops out uh, really alarms me, right? And this is uh, where we also really try to, 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 to give something. And so we, you know, like with this, what you mentioned, my other arm is this contemplative neuroscience and contemplative research. So we, you know, what you, you, you said about the resource project, we had experimented before the pandemics uh, with these mental exercise, mindfulness, compassion-based, these what we call diets, where you put, you know, people in twelve-minute uh, dialogue. Let's say it's a meditation together, where one is just listening empathically without interrupting, the other ex exploring certain questions, and it's very democratic because you know five minutes it's your turn to listen, and the other explores, and then you change roles. So, so you don't need. A therapist for that, right? You just have two people connecting for twelve minutes around certain questions, and you know, and then training a lot of good things like empathic listening and accepting emotions and, and gratitude and things like that. And in the resource project, we had seen that these exercises are quite efficient reducing stress and loneliness and reconnecting people. So what we did is in this COVID study, it's called Cough Social Project. We started a phase two, like after having just descriptively monitored these Berliners, we said, oh, now we can give you something back. And uh, through an app approach, we invited a subgroup of them to do 10 weeks of online training on, you know, one group did these kind of more basic mindfulness, breathing, you know, breathing meditation, like these secular mindfulness training. And the other group did this diet, these socio-emotional partner-based 12-minute exercise. And we have not looked at the data yet, but I'm I'm always sitting in uh, some of these courses, no? and they are only online. And you have to imagine, it was people who had ever never ever done any inner work or mindfulness, or they would also not do that. 
they, they were drawn by random school city register for a COVID study, no? So, so it's very heterogeneous as a tube, tube driver in Berlin, you know, coupled with some hairdresser from south of Berlin and, and they're doing these in our work. And it's very, very touching and really, really humbling to see how beautiful it is and what they learn in so short time and how this, we connect them with themselves and with others on a very deep and authentic level. And yeah, and so I think, uh, of course, we will now look at the objective data, you know, like stress data and cortisol data and genetic data and to see whether these short-term mini exercise just online without, you know, people being in a room together are, you know, like enough to kind of really reduce stress on a hormonal level. But if that works, I think we would have a pretty good uh, thing, you know, which we could just like really give to a huge amount of population to help themselves you know, navigate through this in increasing loneliness, disconnection, anxiety, and stress we see in these studies. So, so I think there are means to do something about it. I'm really curious about the, about the outcome because I, I think, I mean, I, I see just in my, and I've done no research on this, this is just my, <laughs> my sort of empirical, uh, like my, my perspective, but for myself, um, the pandemic and the fact that everything was locked down in the way that it was really opened up communities that I would never have engaged with otherwise. So I found communities online and I, I was I found myself in Zoom calls with people all over the world that were in these different sort of <laughs> topics and discussions. And like I found deeper connection, like some of the people that I've been interacting with for the past two years that I now call friends, I've never met, you know, and, and I really feel like a deep connection, rich connection to them. Um, and then at the same time, I see, uh, because I, I work also with the materials business and like with, within the sort of a manufacturing industry, and there is this, uh, there's a, a constant story about like, oh, when we can just go back to the normal, like when, when there's this longing for the normal. And, and then sometimes when I engage with them just for fun, I'm like, but you know, what were the good things about the pandemic? And then a lot of the salespeople are like, well, so nice to have been home all this time. Like I'm, mm -hmm. I haven't been traveling this little. Like I'm, I'm, I'm much less, you know. But but I don't like it. I, I'm I'm curious about um, the outcome. If you have any feeling for, or if you even looked at it, whether it has to do with the story that you were telling around uh, the pandemic and like how limited or not limited mm -hmm. you are, uh, as opposed to, you know. And then of course I have a Swedish perspective where lockdowns were not as severe as they were in the rest of the world. So. You know, I, I also. Have. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, it's like always when I talk about these studies as averages, no? So you look at the average um, population in Berlin and then you show these effects, and most studies do look at the average. So the second phase is to look at what we call individual difference. So it's like, all, you know, like who has suffered and who is not, you know, who was resilient and who went down the, the rabbit hole in terms of depression and vulnerability. And and we are just starting to to look at that. But what we could see, we we you know we assessed variables like seeing the crisis as a chance, no, uh, you know, like optimism, you know, social cohesion, like you know, looking for support through other people, through you know, increasing your your internet use. Uh, and what we start to see, but it's not totally out there the data. No, we will see certainly new patterns. But we we looked at it a bit superficially already, 
And the people who could more switch from a coping strategy of, you know, like planning your your day and planning your world to some more like accepting whatever is. It's another, uh, we call it coping strategy, is to just accept the moment, no? And that's what in, you know, mindfulness or compassion-based meditation, this is what you learn a lot. It's just moment by moment by moment and just accepting whatever is and not trying to predict too much how world should be and how your day should be in your weeks and your months, because especially in these uncertain times, you will be always disappointed, right? Uh, I mean, I had to cancel, I think, 25 flights uh, during the pandemic. And, you know, so if I too much attached to these travels, I'd just be totally depressed all the time. So I think this is one thing, right? Like how much can you just accept that it's how it is? It doesn't mean that you become you know, like a, a match potato who is, you know, who's just cynical and sitting and saying, oh, you know, like losing any agency and, and opinion about the world. But I think it's more this kind of contemplative acceptance of saying, well, can I do something about it? And if I can't do something about it, let's see what can I do out of the moment? No, what can it give to me? And the people who who, de- who developed this, um, they were better off. They they were coping much better with the second shock of these longer. At, at least in Germany, it was a very long so- lockdown. Yeah. yeah, it was you know six months and grey weather and winter. So that was very tough for many people. They couldn't move out of flats. You know, were like very tiny and no light. And so, as so that was one finding we saw. And then something which was super interesting also. It's like, you know, usually social cohesion is is meant to be a buffer against stress. So if you have, you know, good networks and, and a lot of social relationships and high quality relationships, usually you are less prone to stress and mental disease. No, um, But what we saw is that those who had more social cohesion at the beginning of the pandemics suffered more in the lockdown because what they usually do was not possible anymore, right? If they would usually cope with negative emotion by calling or like have have a coffee or go out or dance or, you know, like uh, use social support. So it took a time for people who were big in social cohesion usually and so more resilient to, to actually adapt to the situation. And so only after the first lockdown, they start to use other coping strategy, you know, like, for example, to go more on social media, especially women, they tended to go, to use more like internet, like you said, right, like Zooms and international groups and internet and social media to compensate for the lack of direct social contact they had before, no? And, and, and if they did that, it helped them regulate their emotions and the stress and everything, so... So it's almost like you need to find new ways on of how to cope with this new situation, right? Yeah. yeah. But if you do, then it works. Um, yeah. It's yeah. It's so fascinating because I think I mean I also spend time because that's my my interest and and like what I'm training to to be even more is like a facilitator. And so there there are like two stories in the facilitator community. One is. Um, you can do digital meetings with just as much connection. It's no problem. There's no limitation. Let's just do it. And then the other story is like, oh, you know, this, it's impossible to do all this stuff online. And, and and like, it's very fun to see how these meetings progress in, in you know, this again, like with the, with the being with what is like, okay, we have this stuff, let's move with it. Or, 
you know, we're longing for this other thing. And, and if only it was different, then uh, I could. And um, yeah, so I, I can really relate to what you're pointing to in, the, in, in, your, in your finding. And I think, you know, probably just to, to add something where, where you were alluding to, I think the, the answer whether, you know, this hybrid, this, this online world is healthy or not, I think it will be something in the middle, right? Because on one hand, we, it benefits that, that we can now, for example, do conferences and invite many more people because we don't have to pay for air, airfares and it's not so elitistic anymore. So it's more inclusive, you could say. On the other hand, I know that huge amount of doctors say, you know, like the, how do you call them, osteopaths and and, and back doctors, yeah, and, yeah, you know, <laughs> and they say it's a catastrophe, you know, our, I mean, we can't help anymore. We have so many patients because, and I felt that too myself, I'm sitting from morning to evening in some Zoom calls and I'm not moving my body and, you know, like a healthy mind is in a healthy body. So I think that's something where we don't even need science, I think, to understand that if we're <laughs> like from morning to evening, just on social media, Zoom or internet, and we're not moving our bodies anymore, it's not healthy. No, indeed. And and of course, like the, there's something around uh, like a well, well curated meeting and, and like really preparing for uh, like a digital meeting and like the potential that it comes there. And if you can bring the same intensity into the physical space, I find that, that of course, there is more more juice, let's say, in the physical space because you have more transmission and you are closer and you can kind of feed off each other's energies and, and also like facial expression, you see more micro movements and whatever. Yes. Um, but nonetheless, I think that that preparation part is like, it's interesting, you know, so if we if we bring what we have learned in these good meetings into the physical space, like what would then happen and like what connection is possible? Yeah, and so that's perhaps bringing me, you know, like to this, you know, the startup I'm advising at the moment for, for implementing also this diet, this interpersonal connection. And, you know, I'm always talking about healthy digitalization or unhealthy digitalization. And what I mean with that is, is much broader than, you know, just um, having good curated uh, meeting, but also the business backbone behind digital platform. Like, you know, like I think what we talked about this loneliness epidemics in young people and, one hypothesis is, is that it's social media promoting that because nowadays social media, the economic backbone they have is attention economy. So it's how can I grab the attention of the users and they have deep learning algorithm behind which have addiction models behind. No, it's like, how do we get like a Skinner wet, right? It's like a dopamine system. It's like, how do we get these young people to click as much as possible to our social media? We get it through these kind of social rewards like like and dislike. And, you know, I always call that the kind of narcissistic icons because if your identity then basically become attached to look perfectly and being liked by 2,000 people and clicked by 5,000, uh, this is a total narcissistic model of yourself. And especially in the, in the adolescent, brain, which is still developing and, and, you know, the hormones kick in and everything is upside down, the discrepancy between how someone feels like ugly, too fat, too much pickles, you know, like, <laughs> you say spots on their face, like prickles. And then you, you have to show up on the social media as perfect and, you know, have some perfect Instagram pictures and always like being liked by millions and, you know, be even more extraordinary than the day before. And so then the discrepancy between how you feel and the image you put 
project outside gets so big that that the, the youngsters start killing themselves. We, the, the suicide rate is exponentially growing in 15 plus. Can you imagine? That has never, ever been the case. Never. Mm. And so, uh, you know, I'm really, because on one, I'm really interested to work and help, you know, like inform healthy digitalization. What I mean with that is you still use apps and digital platforms uh, but you use them to create or facilitate real, honest, authentic connection between people. So not narcissistic, like I like you and I <laughs> have to be perfect, but just two people showing up and one listening and one really vulnerably, you know, exploring difficult emotions, vulnerability, shame, everything, which especially in these young kids, everything you, you usually don't want to share. And, and that is really bringing connection to yourself and to others. No, it's really healthy and strengthening and you feel heard and you feel seen and respected. And so I think there is a possibility to use the digital space and its new methods in a much more healthy way. Uh, and that means that we have to also abandon um, the classic economic backbone model. No, we can't have deep learning algorithm, which optimize the social platform to be, you know, like clicked mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, more uh, attention economy, right? Like to make someone addicted so that they click more and there's more uh, publicity, which is like implicitly entering your brain um, because that's really unhealthy. And that is really, really causing a huge mental problem, mental health problem uh, in the whole world. And I don't think, you know, politicians are aware of how massive this problem will be. Uh, and so I think there is really an urgency to do something about it, right? And I don't mean uh, being negative against digital platforms. or We can't get rid of them anyhow. They are now in our lives. But we need to rethink how we build them. Yeah, it, it leads me to, it's like a, it's, it's two feet to stand on in a way where you either Either you give primacy to to the actual digital platform and and the the well being of the platform, so to say, and then whatever metrics have been put in place that so that this platform can succeed. So in of course, like this famous case is Facebook, and like you had they've had you know, numerous people coming out, and like the social dilemma was there, and they're maximizing for time on site, and and they're really trying to keep you and capture you there, and so all of our behavior is then harnessed and harvested to to service the platform in a way, and then there's the other way of, of thinking about it where like the the human the human connection is the one that which is in in the center the human to human so then the digital is just a tool or like like you say like a facilitation or like a mm -hmm. reinforcement or an amplifier for be able to facilitate connection between humans and and this is a completely different um different mindset for for those that are you know and then when you go to your investors you know what what do you what do you promote like how can you because it could be equally addictive, but it's not going to be the maximum amount of, you know, then you're probably looking at more of a service model like that you can that you mm. charge for, which is beneficial to the user rather than the, the ad model, which is then, you know, it's this whole idea of like, if you're not, uh, if you're not, um, if you don't know what you're selling, then you're the product or like, you know, if, if you don't know what, what product you're interacting with, then you are the product and somebody else is yeah. buying you, which is kind of the ad model of, of Facebook. Or Exactly. Yeah, I think that um, you have to somehow perhaps abandon this idea of, you know, becoming a unicorn 
in one year and the only thing which matters is the money coming out of the startup and you know whether you do milliards or not you have to probably be happy with a kind of organic growth model because um because now the addiction if it all comes for example when we do these diets right they come because after a diet people feel better no they're like wow i really felt seen i felt heard i could I could release my stress. I could find a moment for myself in the day. No? So that can make addictive. And I have seen that in my studies. People mm. want to continue. And even now it was very cute. The Berliners, now the Kopf Social Project. There were so many. They said, can we continue with that after 10 weeks? And and so we allowed that for 10 weeks. And I think a third of the groups you know, did wow. voluntarily yeah. continue to do this daily Pairing, not perhaps every day anymore, but like a lot, right? And so there is something addictive in the sense, but that is not bad anymore because it's just because it it does you good. It's like when you do sport and it's and you feel better afterward, and then you want to do more sport, but it's not bad for your health, right? The opposite is good for your health. There is actually because that's something that I was thinking about when you were you were talking about the social cohesion um, aspect of it, and and I'm wondering like. The, there's also some importance, which I guess is, is hard to look at sometimes. But it's some I've, I've felt an importance into like from from where are you doing something? Like are you doing it to escape, or are you doing it to connect? Like mm-hmm. the, the the behavior could be the same. You could you can escape into a conversation, or you can you can connect into a conversation. You can kind of escape into social media, or you can go there to just look at the things you need, and then you are done. So it's like. It's it's with with what mentality does the the person step into it uh, with and and what you were saying about with the that's what I wanted to tie it back to you said that people that have more social relationships had a harder time in the beginning and people that had less social relationship maybe had a less harder time and it makes me curious about if it's um if it's a specific behavior you know you were like oh I have so many social relations I'm so busy all the time I'm going to see people all the time and this is like an escape mechanism or if it's actually something that you are going are you running away from something or are you going towards something and I don't know if that's captured or if you have any insights into that <laughs> no and not in our studies because that there we would need to go too deep in like hidden intentions right and how to measure them it's very difficult but you are totally right. I mean, social contact can be escaping from some pain or so on, um, or it can be really to connect deeply. And that all depends on how your social contacts are. And this is what I like with these, you know, contemplative diets. It It is really a practice. It's like a spiritual practice. It's like a, but secular, no? So it's like a meditation, like mindfulness, breathing meditation, or one of these classic meditation Uh, So there are like rules to it, no? So there is like, what does it mean to be in an authentic dialogue, no? Mm. And there you cannot escape because you you really do this exploration for yourself, no? So it's really about exploring your deeper truths. And the other, he he or she cannot interrupt anyhow. So it's not a social chit-chat dialogue where you can you know, feel better because, or like, you know, like, but it's really, and so, and the one who listens has nothing else to do than really honestly to listen because anyhow, the person cannot tell his or her story. You know what usually happens when you have dialogues? It's like you prepare already, ah, yeah, 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 I know that too in my life, you know, and I had that and then, oh, I'm interrupting. But this doesn't work because you can't talk anyhow, right? So, so this means you, 
you're just listening. And so you learn through this dialogue that listening can be fabulous if you really open your heart to the truth of the other and there's nothing else for you to do. And actually, when I do these diets and these, sometimes I give real life retreats, you know, like master classes, and we start doing three days retreat where we learn these different techniques and the, the, the biology and the psychology behind it. And so it's a very secular science-based approach to this inner work. Um, and, and then when I, I instruct the first time these diets, people who are listening have tears and they cry. And, and when we ask what happened, they say, my God, you know, I don't know when I have actually listened like that to anybody the last years, mm. you know, or also the other way around. I don't remember when I have been listened like that in a non-judgmental, non-interrupted way since years, no? And they are very deeply touched just by the space which opens up, no? And so I think this practice is everything else than running away from you. It is really reconnecting with you and the other uh, in a very deep way. And, and, and also with humanity, because what we do with these diets, when we do that in, in science, we are changing partner every week. So imagine I would do one week kind of these dialogues every day. Next week, I would be coupled with someone else from the course. And then next week again. So perhaps I have prejudices. I'm like, mm, this arrogant, older guy, oh my God. And I have to tell them something really about me and difficult emotion. And oh. and then you hear this other guy being vulnerable as well and just human and having anxiety as well and things. And then your heart is just cracking open. You're like, you're like oh my God, we are all just human. So, so what happens is that this, sense of shared humanity of global planet right starts to increase in a natural organic way and i think that's what we really need because we are living in a at the moment you asked me at the beginning now what what is our world like i think one of the biggest problem at the moment of the world is not the virus it's the polarization around it it's really like the the disc i mean it's amazing how many people don't speak anymore with each other because one wants to be vaccinated and the other not, right? And in Germany, the big, big uh, divide. Uh, and it, it, it's the polarization between people's opinion and not being able to hold different perspectives anymore or gray tones, I think is a, a huge disaster of our modern world. And it also related to social media now because of this algorithm polarizing our brains. Yeah, this this whole idea that we we are not seeing the same the same information, so there are no real campfires that we can gather around uh, across the divides, so to say. Or you have several exactly. campfires, but they're completely isolated. Yeah, exactly. And then you think that everyone thinks like you. You are in your bubble, and then the media and the Google and everything also provides you just with the bubble information. But every day a little bit more extreme, right? So that that you click and you continue getting engaged. And then at some point you think this is reality, no, and has absolutely nothing to do with, with reality anymore. And, and so for that, we need whether digital or real spaces where we get people with different opinions and tastes and colors together in an authentic listening space again. No? And this is really important. Yeah, I heard somebody just recently describe um, like a dialogical um, practice to, to be the starting point is always A equals B. 
so that it, it's more about an exploration around finding out how these two um, opposites or, or these two viewpoints uh, belong together, how, how they are, like, how can I integrate them? How can I put them together? How can they, how can they talk to each other? And, and um, I think that's very different from uh, at least a lot of the, a lot of the, both the media landscape and also the new media landscape. I mean, people are in their, um, in their own fortresses, if you will. Uh, I perceive that a lot. Mm. But are you um, now veering off a little bit of, of the the safe uh, topics, but but more on a on a thought provoking side? I've also there's a a group of philo- philosophers that are talking about the fact that we have suppressed, let's say, our our religious beliefs. That the religion, that fever, that that passion that goes into religion or belief is popping up in other other aspects, uh, in other topics, and. Of course, then the pandemic has been one of them, but just politics in general. I think the U.S. is, is mainly, it's not about what is being said, it's about who is saying it. So it's like this this tribal sort of, I believe in this God, I believe in that God. And, and it's not God, but it's like a person. I don't know if, uh, is that something that you have thought about? Um, so, so basically like a Trump religion or like, a, um, I mean, I guess, I guess, since humanity is existing, there is a tendency to project on authority figures, no? whether it's stars or whether it was, I don't know, a politician before, like your teacher or whoever, you know, your therapist or your... Uh, so I guess there is this tendency you know, to want to have a, a person you can look up to and also a person you can give your responsibility to. Uh, so there is also... Some, Something about having gods or, you know, like putting some people up on the pedestal is about not being responsible for your own life and projecting the responsibility to this other person, right? The state or the legal system or the the prime minister. And then when something goes wrong in your life, it's also the fault of them, right? Or it's also the fault of, of the opposite party or whatever, so there is, I think, also this aspect, right? Of <laughs> but it's, it's interesting when that that scapegoat, if you will, then becomes, I'm, I'm doing air quotes, but that becomes somebody in the world, whereas that is that the scapegoat is someone outside of the world. Like you, you know, there's still like this, you know, the God that we were used to be relating to that was somebody mm-hmm. outside of the world. It was supernatural, <laughs> if you will. But now we've brought them down and like put them among us. And so then there's more tendency to violence, I think. Or I, I don't know. I've never thought those thoughts before, but it, it sounded like there was like a... Yeah, it's an interest, interesting thought whether, you know, having our scapegoats as immaterial gods, um, I mean, for sure, it gives us more this feeling when something goes bad, it's not the fault of a human where you can like attack them. Or, I mean, what what I see a lot is this canceling culture in, in social media and you know shitstorms and all that stuff. I have also been victim myself of that, and that's very brutal. It's very dehumanizing. It's a very very brutal mechanism. But because I'm a social psychologist, I have an and German. No, uh, you know, I'm basically second generation after Holocaust. So we, as Germans, were raised with the question. Why could that happen? Why, you know, how can this horror uh, have happened? <laughs> and I think the 70s in social psychology were actually motivated by understanding that, right? It's like, how can you dehumanize a person so much or a group of person or, you know, in group, out group? And so I have also studied that in my in my social neuroscience, right? Like I was doing empathy research and mm. measuring brain of people 
who were feeling empathy for someone in pain, no? And seeing that networks in your brain were lighting up when someone was suffering, even though you were not feeling anything. And so it was a vicarious sharing of, of, of the suffering of another, which we call empathy. And, and then I did experiments because I asked myself, okay, our brain seems to be wired to empathize with others, but why don't we have more empathy in the world then, right? Why, why do we have so much cruelty? And so I came, of course, through the whole in-group, out-group literature of social psychology, you know, the whole literature and research which is out there that, you know, as much as we have the capacity for empathy, we also have the capacity for in-group, out-group discrimination. And that's very strong and biologically imprinted. So it's very easy to make you believe someone is an out-group member because of different beliefs or different <laughs> color of the skin or nationality. And we could actually very, very easily reduce empathic brain responses just by saying to someone who was scanned, hey, this guy who is now receiving pain is someone from the rival football club of yours, right? Or someone who has been unfair to you in these games or really silly stuff, right? It's not like a war. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or, and, and, and then you didn't, you didn't see any empathic signal anymore. But like even sometimes schadenfreude, you know, like reward areas in the yeah. brain lit up who were like, enjoying to see the other getting you know like little painful stimuli and and shocks and so so that helped i mean it's just replicating in neuroscience what social psychology did in the 70s to just show that our empathy is very fragile right and and we can very very easily have a, a collective narrative which identifies people as an outgroup and in the moment where we let that happen we don't have any compassion and empathy for these people anymore. And we don't need to be a psychopaths. It's basically a mechanism which every student and every healthy person has. And, uh, and this is why it's so incredibly important to teach what we call global compassion. So it's not just having empathy, you know, like a fleeting emotion where you share pain or not, but it's really more this kind of very altruistic, deep motivation to want the, the benefit of another person. And for that, you really need to cultivate your system, no? And it's what we call care system. It's mm. like, it's it's a biological system, which is very altruistic, no? We, without that, we wouldn't have bonding with our children for years, no? Uh, that we, you know, that we would do everything for their welfare, even if they have cried the whole night and it's been really yeah, exactly. difficult and you know we we still care and 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 so this system this care system affiliation system is very strong even in animals and and that is the base for you know for compassion to arise no and so when we do these contemplative mental trainings we try to to activate through inner work this care system uh so that it becomes stronger and and then you know after you know, it's easy to find to feel compassion for your kin and for your in-group because biology has has made us to feel that. But it's very difficult for people who are out-group members or who are not on the same opinion or who, you know, have different belief system. I mean, you know, for Trump people when you hate Trump, you know? And so the, the practice is to really like then take another network in the brain. It's not the compassion or empathy networks. It's what we call perspective taking. It's more like cognitive, reflective ability, which, mm. you know, we don't share with all animals. 
Um, and they allow us to really creep into your cognitively into the brain of the other and say, this person just has different beliefs, has a different life history, has different reasons why this person have this belief, no, was raised in another culture where these beliefs were normal. And, and you know, to really deeply understand that beliefs are construction of our mind and not given. They are not like inborn realities. And, and this meta perspective needs to be cultivated and it can be cultivated through dyadic exercise or, you know, like mental exercises of all kinds. And, and I think it's really important if we want to grow, you know, into what we talked about social change, into real global citizen, no? like not just with some rational thinking, oh, we need to love the Chinese as much as us or whatever, but really feel it, you know, mm -hmm. really grow into feeling global citizen. We need to practice these abilities. We cannot just wait until, because biological evolution is very slow. And biological evolution was not made for a global planet like that. No, it was like tribes and in-group, out-group and war between tribes. <laughs> and yeah, it wasn't meant to be, oh, we love everyone on this global planet, including the animals, and <laughs> we don't eat them anymore. No, so, so to really grow into this level of global compassion and consciousness, we really need to cultivate our brains and system. We need to start in schools and also, you know, do that on a very daily basis to overcome the imprinting, let's say, of biology, which is actually not as, yeah, favorable because of this in-group, out-group thing, right? Does that make sense? It makes sense. And, and it's also something that I'm, I'm very curious about. I've, I've been like, there's this... Um... I was somebody told me this term of like endarkenment that we have been like you know enlightening we've been like ascending and, and mm -hmm. like moving up and like given more and more um agency i guess to to our cognitive abilities and then there's also this movement now that i'm i'm seeing i mean it's, it's there's parts of the web that is like very in the networks that i'm hanging out that's very mindy very idea driven um and then you have others that are much more into like these darker like tantra or like the like they, there's some talked about like a dark renaissance like you you bring bring with you all of the the bad stuff like the anger and the sex and like the animalistic drive and the instinct and we have to like integrate it and i mean even in in terms of like the uh like the lalu type like you you have to integrate the red and and like bring it with you with the green and combine it and bring it with you up to like the yellow or the teal or like really move into this next stage of of humanity and and also i heard you say now to overcome the body and I'm, I'm wondering if there's like a way to 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 bring the body and to bring the 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 animal uh invite ah, them in and so to... so i <laughs> i i didn't even oh so yeah that's very good that you bring because it's not i said that wrongly because i'm absolutely not of the attitude to say oh you have to you know to become this light being and just rational and overcome these sexualistic tribes uh, And, and these like old evolutionary thing, I think you always have to integrate darkness. I mean, there's a psychologist speaking in me, you know, like you need to do shadow work also in terms of whenever you're on a spiritual path or like, let's say, perhaps to avoid the word spiritual because nobody knows anymore what it means, but doing, you know, like um, being on a you know, conscious, consciousness path or inner development path. Um, I think you always need to integrate your shadows because if you don't see them and you don't accept and you don't integrate them in a conscious way, they will just get you 
anyhow. No, they will be they will be coming in your life through other symptoms, either it's psychosomatic symptoms or crisis or whatever. So, so I think there's no way shortcutting that, right? But what I'm saying is, if we really want to move into this global humanity and compassion. We can't just stick with what biology has prepared us for, no. right? Which is right. like loving our kins and hating the others and then just biting them and do war again. If you look at, you know, monkeys like chimpanzees, we are the closest to chimpanzees. This is pretty much how they <laughs> behave in, in their societies, right? It's quite aggressive. And we are very close. We are not as peaceful than the bonobos. We are very <laughs> aggressive species. And so I think that is really important. But in no mean, I mean that we should neglect or shortcut the the shadow work we need to do and that and i think that's a critique i have sometimes to this modern mindfulness movement where i think sometimes this has been misunderstood by some yeah perhaps also like businesses who wanted to sell it quickly or to do you know like in two days to bliss or in two days to enlightenment with the app which is super costly uh, and and I think what happens is that you think just by breathing, you you'll get enlightened without looking at all your your stuff, right? And um, and so I think that will not work um, and, because it just goes so far. And then I mean, life is full of suffering and of conflict and of humans, and we are not perfect. So we we, we better integrate what we what we are, right, with all the aspects. Yeah, and most of the both psychological frameworks certainly all the therapeutic framework i know is all about starting to become conscious about your parts you don't want to see <laughs> you know the ugly parts but that doesn't mean i wouldn't call it dark because then in a way it's not like the dark net right because the dark net is really dark no it's really devil but doing shadow work is not really dark it's actually a very beautiful work if you are not afraid of it because you are just like Ah, that's interesting. Here's my manipulative side. Oh, okay. So so why do you have to be so manipulative? And then, you know, this inner part would tell you, if I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have survived because my mother was so, you know, uh, obtrusive or like mm -hmm. transgressive mm -hmm. and so on. So there's always a reason, right? No, it's not because you were born and you are mean starting understanding that and integrating it and starting loving this part also usually calm down these parts. So it means you're, you're, what you might have thought is ugly. You're like starting to say, oh, it's just a part of me and it's not so bad. And actually this part wanted at some point in my life wanted good for me. No, So it's, it integrates and pacifies your inner system. No, And, and so I think this work is really important and I see this more and more more like in the kind of spiritual scene but also more and more with my psychology psychology therapist friend that the the concept of trauma work and collective trauma work is becoming more and more salient you know like the realization somehow of people that you that we have to work on our shadow trauma parts also collectively to to become a more wholesome society yeah, I, I really resonate with that. And, and for me, it's also been like partly this just inviting these pieces in and like allowing them to sit and, and do their thing, like the, the whatever you are worthless or like whatever that voice might be saying that I, I don't really want to hear it. But, but when I listen to it, I'm like, okay, you know, that's good. I know you're trying to keep me safe from, from this change or whatever I'm reaching now. So I, I know that it's, it's good. 
to to keep that also like you know stay stay within my boundary and and um there's something like a little bit too cozy sometimes in in especially in the developmental like people that are aspiring so much to developing and and we're spending so much time and and investing so much time in our like development and then you want to be good still so it's like this um there's something around this idea of resolution or like mm-hmm. solving something rather than being in the process like you know development is not you, you can only see it was development when you're looking back like mm-hmm. how can we start thinking about development just as movement and then we will see like it's it's not better it's not going to progress it's really just movement and then we will see um yeah ah that's an interesting uh yeah it's you know like because i come also from motivation psychology you know i talked about this care system which is a, a motive or motivation system from us but then there is also other motives known in psychology as achievement. No, you have to excel, become better, you know, develop to to become the best human being or most enlightened or whatever or best sport or most millionaire. And so we have these what we call incentive-driven motives, and this is like consumption, power, and achievement, right? Mm. And what I see a lot, and that's somehow what you could call a, a spiritual bypass or a shortcut is if if you are then you know doing spiritual practices but motivated by this achievement system uh, then it becomes absurd in a way because it's it's exactly the opposite of just accepting whatever is and just being with whatever is 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 basically to get better to you know to have a better meditation and i i hear that a lot with my beginner participants that they put themselves under huge pressure in my studies at the beginning Oh, I have not done the diet correctly. I have not really listened. I'm still not good in knowing what my body tells me and and to name it. And so it's these words, no? They, I'm not good enough. I, I'm still not enough good. I have not learned fast enough. This is the achievement system. And and all our big systems, the school system, the science system, the finance system, economic politics, they are all based a lot in the achievement system, no? So... Uh, we have to excel to be better to be yeah, the and there's even the even this whole thing of like I'm done with that oh i I really had a lot of trauma and, and now I'm done with it, yeah, I'm like, are you sure like i, I I'm trying to because that's something that I've had in myself as well around the language like I'm done with it, I'm like, I'm not done with it it, it yeah. just like if I get a bigger prod like a bigger trigger, it will come back like it's there mm-hmm. it's it's in me, it's just exactly. Like, it's like all these inner parts, no, they never go. I mean, you know, and, and from brain science, we know even memories never go. They can just become, you know, it's there can be grass growing over over the streets and, and then you don't find the street anymore so easily. But you know, the tracks are still there in the streets. And I'm I'm also curious around because we just touched super lightly on it, but but if we would if let's say that that we are I really, I very much uh, aspire to what you were bringing in earlier around sort of business that is not just for business sake. I mean, it, it is mm-hmm. around um, doing something and and uh, achieving something and collecting people around uh, uh, a purpose. But maybe it doesn't have to be around maximizing profit, let's say, or like becoming Steve Jobs or I mean, not Steve Jobs, maybe, but like uh, what's the Amazon guy, Jeff Bezos or yeah. somebody like that. Um, <laughs> And that's so, all these gods, right? For yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's like, why do you put him as on a god? I mean, I don't really get that. Yeah. Um, 
but but how this diet like or or this um if we would like draw draw a few circles or like make visible a couple of practices which would allow me to to cultivate some uh, cultivate some particular traits or like how what what would you recommend for like the average person um that has been looking like what what would you like underline as important aspects to think about to keep in your in your daily practice or in your weekly or, or spiritual or contemplative I mean, yeah, yeah per- I, I, perhaps like just because there are two two interesting issues in what you just said i think one thing is bringing me to this bridge about the caring economics right mm-hmm. and i think that was a little what brought me to develop this framework together with you know um micro economist and macroeconomist, uh, because I was at that time, you know, just a little story um, talking in the World Economic Forum in Davos about uh, findings of this resource study and, you know, how actually doing a little bit of compassion-based meditations and loving kindness and gratitude exercise or diets could actually change your cooperation behavior and altruism. And we used um, economic game game theoretical paradigm, which are usually used in behavior economics mm-hmm. to measure something like cooperativity and trust and donations and so on. Yeah. So I used the paradigm which economic are accepting as, as measures, as behavioral measures of altruism cooperation as defined in economy. And what I showed to these people, this very elite little group of people was, hey, look, your New neo-economic, homo-economicus uh, theory is totally wrong because you can just by doing this inner mental practice for I mean, 30 minutes a day for about three months, you can actually change what economists call preferences. No, Economists usually say, okay, you are either egoist, you're born like that, or you're an altruist and you're born like that and you cannot change it. They call it like preferences are stable. They are context insensitive. So no matter where you are, mm-hmm. it, they are just like, if you like grapes more than prints, this is just what you like more. And you will buy grapes and not prints if you are given the choice. So so we were like, no, all of these assumptions are just wrong. And we have like these data no, showing, look, you can within three months change someone who on your measures was very egoistic, keeping all the money, never cooperating, not reciprocating, to become really altruistic. And that only because they did this mental practice every day, which is super simple and you don't even need to um, buy something. You just have it in yourself, right? It's just changing your intention and doing certain, opening your care system, your heart, uh, you know, cultivating to get that goal. So, that that Dennis Snow, who was a macroeconomist, and at that time he was the president of the Kiel Institute of, of, of Global Economics, he was like, oh, my God, if that is true, we need to change all our economic models. And he is a, you know, he is a macroeconomist, so he is a mathematician doing these models. And he's like, oh, really, we have a problem. And there were actually really two other Nobel Prize winning economists who dared to say that openly in the question Q&A, they said, but Frau Singer, is that really true? Do you have a lot of these examples? I'm like, psychology is full of them, right? For us psychologists, the the premises you have in these classic economic models are crazy. They they have absolutely nothing to do with psychology and and biology and human nature. 
And so they were like, okay, we have to rewrite all our economic models. I'm like, yeah, please, <laughs> why not doing it? Then I, I understood through a lot of years of interaction that it's really difficult because you would need to find mathem because the ambition of economics nowadays is to have mathematical models, you know, predicting markets. And so you need mass, which is as complex that it can account for different contexts changing every second and different utility function within us, which we call motivation system, being activated in different people in different ways. And then a certain context can also manipulate how the relationship between your motivation system and the actual behavior is, right? So, so it's very complex and, and we just don't have mathematical model who could really easily map that out. And I think this is why probably economists didn't start doing it yet. Uh, and, and, but in a way, they know that these mathematical models they are using, is they are not reflective of human nature. But I think the tragedy is that these mathematical models started influencing all our systems. Uh, so without us knowing that these homo economicus model was actually the backbone, you know, not only our financial system is based on that, but like education system, healthcare system. And, and that creeped into society without us knowing that it is, was actually a, an economic picture of human nature, which is really wrong. And I think when I understood that, I was like, oh boy, that is really important actually to change these, because I couldn't care less, why would I change mathematical models which are not real? Um, but when I understood the influence these uh, yeah, these models of human nature have on all our system and how we think about it and how politicians think about human nature, I thought it's really, really important to write books and to make people aware of that. Uh, and that was where Caring Economics was born, where we said, look, instead of an economy based only on optimizing your own um, you know, achievement in a way based on achievement motivation, and, you know, optimizing your outcomes and just being greedy and consumption, it's like also based on consumption motivation, not more. How about integrating all these other very important motivation system, like affiliation, relationships, care, uh, trust, which is super important for our happiness and for, for human interaction. And this is where we started trying to really start modeling in a real mathematical way. Um, these psychological, biological knowledge into economic utility functions. And that was Dennis Noah doing that. Uh, but we, we, never, we wanted to write a book, but we have never <laughs> uh, found the time to really finish it. I mean, to really write it. So It seems like it's also been, being written in a way by, by just the fact that we are like, talking. Because, I mean, what, what I hear you describing is um, a, a model where all the variables are dependent in a way. And, and that must be extremely difficult to to deal with and like very intricate, like feedback mechanisms and like, exactly. it sounds like almost biological systems would, would get yeah. a pat, like. But you know, like even for our brain, we don't have the adequate model. I mean, even to understand the biological system, the, you know, like the complex nature of this network we call the brain, we, we have some mathematics, but we are far away from really modeling it in a correct way. So imagine doing that for macro system between brains, uh, so we are just not there yet to be able to capture that in a mathematical way. But then I always said to Dennis, is that really, 
do, do we really have to base economy on mathematics only? Yeah, that's that's super interesting. And I'm also thinking about this. Um, I, I have this feeling or or um, a, a lens that I put on sometimes to look at the world is that that there is like again this division of like what we were talking about with the social media almost. It's like you are talking about uh, an artificial system, like the, the the technology in a way, like the, this whole idea of like technocracy, like the but in the original Greek sense, like techno as something unnatural. Uh, you know, and Krati is like the the governance system, um, and so like that is standing as, in opposition to, or like at least apart from uh, something that's human centered. And so the one feels like messy and 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 um, unpredictable and 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 full of like conflicting like conflicts of interest and like different motivations and different systems. And then the other one, it's kind of clean and and neat and sterile, and and you can kind of move forward, and you have these directions that go from one point to another and in the human side it's more like a wave or even a circle like it's much more circular and it's much more you know loopy and non and also non-predictable right because it's all these complex non-predictable system very i mean they are predictable but very complex and i think it's a bit like yeah you are right the the parallel to the to the you know deep learning algorithm and social media and so on uh you know the technocracy is it's it's like this feeling, oh, I can predict the world, right? I can predict market space. I can predict behavior of people and the whole science is about predicting, you know, and so having models, right? And then there is this much more complex biology, <laughs> which <laughs> is absolutely not predictable in that easy way. You know, our brain is also a very um, dynamic, complex system changing all the time and we have not totally understood it at all. Uh, you know, and so I think, yeah, you're absolutely right there. This, uh, but then, the, you know, like, I think the problem becomes if we are building these simple or let's say quasi simple techno predictable, mathematically predictably based worlds, whether this is social media or economic systems. But then when we become slave of them, then it becomes the problem, right? Because we have built something which is not as complex as we are. And now we have to become slave of the system, no? either through addiction loops because they predict our market our consumption behavior and what we will buy and get for food. And then it's really problematic, right? Because it's kind of forcing us to behave in a box which is much too small and, and simple for what we are. We are much more complex. Yeah, it's like how how do you how do you make a circle fit in a like circle and a square fit together? It's either you let the square fit inside the circle, or the circle fits inside the square. And now we're like it's we're the circle inside the square. And so, like either we cut pieces off of ourselves if we are a bigger circle, or or we just make ourselves smaller in a way too. And and so the question would be: Is there not a possibility, you know, to uh, to to fit our systems we are working in and in, in living in more to our real nature. Mm. Uh, but then obviously we have to probably give up this idea of total predictability. Uh, and I think w one thing which certainly happened with um, COVID and the pandemic is that everyone was forced to, to, to accept more the uncertainty and unpredictability of life. No, I mean, at least me as a German we were raised in a culture which was hugely predictable. I mean, up to the hours of the trains being not a minute late and, you know, like me as a scientist, all about prediction and models. And and now here we are. We cannot even predict the next week. Mm. 
I would love to keep going. And um, I'm like trying to be the responsible podcast host um, <laughs> as well. Unfortunately, <laughs> I have to take that hat on. Um, this was really an enlivening conversation. Thank you for, for engaging with it. I, I, it's just fantastic to speak to you again. Um, if people want to interact with you or, or find some resources, where, like, both for, for projects that you're inter- like working on or where you want people to in- engage with you, how, how can they, where would you direct them? Um, so I think uh, one of the, the best like archive about my work and publication and projects is my personal webpage, and that's the www, and then my name, tanyasinger.de, de is Germany. Um, link and for, Tanya link to it as well. Yeah, oh, yeah okay. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And Tanya is, is with I, I'm not a G Tanya, I'm a strange Tanya with I. <laughs> So that and, and there you find, I mean, you have a homepage, but then you have lots of subpages with pictures and links and podcasts and talks. And, and, and then you can, of course, also email me, no, if you have questions or you want me to send some scientific PDF, if you are courageous enough to read this, this specific, you know, like very scientific literature. Uh, so that's, I think, is the, is the easiest way. And uh, yeah, then... I guess, you know, but it will take a time, but I think in a year's time, you know, this this app I'm advising, like this global platform, which is called humanize.com, will be, I think it's just born. So I think that uh, will be certainly a wonderful way to to do, you know, not in science, like I'm doing them in science, but outside of science, just for everyone to, to practice these diets, right? And then to connect globally across the globe with different people, different languages. And I, that, I think it's, it's really wonderful work. So I, I check that out. But in a year, <laughs> it's not like I think, you know, it takes time to develop. And, and then, yeah, I, I also offering these masterclass for practical work. But at the moment, I just offered them in, in French and in German. But at some point, I, I'll surely do that in English too. Uh, I would need a host uh, for that i'm always doing that you know it's like next to my work so mm. um and and but these are like you know we do the three days retreat where we really learn about these practices because you ask you know and in a way it's a bit like with sports no it's better you you learn these practices in a real retreat with real teachers and then you can practice them alone at home if you want but but you need an onboarding you need some some coach who helps you not to do the wrong you know, it's it's easy to say, hey, just breathe. But then, you know, <laughs> there are many ways of how to how to do these exercises and practices, and, and and you can also do them wrongly or mm. yeah. superficially and without knowing because it's all inside, so you don't see it, no. And so, I think it's always good to start practicing in some course or some, you know, MBSR course or whatever is out there. And have some teachers coach you at the beginning a little bit, and so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, at least in my experience, it's very much where we've been talking about today. Like, it's a, are you escaping or are you connecting? Like, are you are you trying to do good to achieve something, or are you being exactly. with the experience? Like, exactly. these are the. And then I spoke to Jamie Bristov uh, a couple of weeks back, and and he was also pointing to this sort of there there is also like rigor to mindfulness it's not, yes. it's not just necessarily cozy you know it's, it's no. like you're pointing to it's like you have to also deal with the stuff that bubbles up and I, exactly yeah and you need a teacher sometimes pointing you especially when it's going to shadow work i mean you for sure need someone else the diet are doing it partly because you have some reflection like a mirror but not um and 
but yeah, and then also, as you said, no, mindfulness can be an escape, but then you have missed the point. So, <laughs> so and every every experienced teacher will will notice and will guide you and will say, you know, try that, right? Mm. And so, yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> Is there something else that that wants to be said? No, I think you know there is lots to be said yes. all the time, and we have talked a long time. And thank you so much. It was there was a lot of stuff which made me think also, and you know, which were new thoughts. And I will reflect on them more, and I come back to you if I have new ideas about it. Yeah, please <laughs> do that. Thanks so much for how you show up and what you do in the world. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm.